there were never strawberries like the ones we had that salty afternoon. I don't want to talk about it. Oh, I am in the restaurant and I love it. Voice recognition technology. And I love it. In Scotland. And welcome to the first episode of The Scottishist. I am your host, Laura MacDonald, and I love Scotland. I love living here, and I think I'm really lucky to live somewhere that's so beautiful, with such brilliant and entertaining people, and such a long and intricate history. Now, I am slightly obsessed with Scottish culture, and in particular, how certain elements from our culture, from art, architecture, politics, folklore, food, music and literature, became recognisably Scottish. Not just recognised here, but worldwide. I am not in any way an expert on any of this stuff. In fact, I do have a lot of questions about Scottish culture, because I don't believe there's just one way of being Scottish. And, in fact, some of our favourite elements of Scottishness even seem to contradict each other. So, in every episode of The Scottishist, I am taking a dive into an icon of Scottish culture to find out why it is just so iconic. And I'll be bringing all these answers right to your ear holes. For the first episodes, we are getting under the blankets with the Vexillology crew and looking the flag of Scotland right in its blue and white face. What's the story? Why do we fly the saltire? When did it start? What's it got to do with St Andrew? What shade of blue is it exactly? And does that even matter? And what does the saltire actually mean in Scotland today? Ready? Crack on. The saltire, or the St Andrew's cross, is the name for the flag of Scotland. It is made up of a white diagonal cross on an azure, which is heraldry speak for blue, background. As a design, it is simple. And it's old. Old enough, if you were to believe the stories, that it predates both the concept of national flags and the nation of Scotland. The saltire is so old, in fact, that we have a rather snazzy legend to explain its origins, rather than any solid evidence. You know, what I like to think of as like pub facts rather than library facts. Now, that legend, and I promise we will get to it eventually, doesn't just explain why Scotland adopted the saltire, but also, rather conveniently, how we ended up with St Andrew as our patron saint as well. Because in the Middle Ages, that was far from a done deal. I really don't massively want to get into the history of the early church in Scotland because I have neither the expertise nor the willpower to do it justice. So, very quickly, loosely and absolutely not in specifics, the early Christian church in Scotland was closely connected to the Celtic church from Ireland. And the most popular saint in that tradition was Columba. He was the big man and almost certainly would have been considered the patron saint, except for the rising competition of the Roman Catholic Church. Imagine competing Christianities in Scotland, who'd have thunk it? When Malcolm Canmore, he was King Malcolm III, abolished the Celtic Church in Scotland in 1069, the passion for following Columba dissolved with it. Do I find it ironic that this king finished off Columba's chances at patron sainthood? Well, yeah. Yeah, I do. Because the name Malcolm in Gaelic means follower of Columba. Just, mwah, no notes. So, with the Celtic church on its way out in Scotland, we're needing someone a little less Celtic to take on the job of patron saint. And Andrew was ready. Well, obviously he'd been dead for a thousand years at this point, but figuratively he was ready. You, you know what I mean. Now, again, 
I'm not exactly up on my hagiography and I'm absolutely the last person that you want to give you the serious Bible scholar work. This is my potted intro to St Andrew, the patron saint of fishermen, singers, Romania, Russia, Ukraine and Scotland. Andrew was born in the village of Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee and like his brother Simon Peter, he was a fisherman. Andrew was, however, a disciple of St John the Baptist before becoming a follower of the Bigian Christ and he is known as the first called of the apostles because, according to tradition anyway, he was the first one to pick up the phone when Jesus rang. Not that much is known about his early life, although he is mentioned in the Bible as taking part in the feeding of the 5,000. So, you know, that's cool. We, we like someone who'll pack a picnic. But it seems fairly certain that he took the order to get out into the world and spread the gospel very seriously. There isn't much evidence beyond tradition to say where he preached, although there are stories from across the Middle East. It's also absolutely not certain where he was buried, but Patras in Greece claims to be the place where he was martyred and crucified. According to the legend, he declared that he was not worthy to be crucified upright in the same manner as Jesus had been, and he was instead nailed to a saltire, a diagonal X-shaped cross. This cross became his symbol, and he can be seen lugging it with him wherever he is portrayed. If you want to see what I mean, then jump over to our Instagram, I'll share some pictures. The supposed anniversary of his martyrdom is the 30th of November and it is this date that is honoured as his feast day every year. Now St Andrew's Day tends not to be celebrated too heavily in Scotland. It's more or less a normal day perhaps with an extra sprinkling of Scottish pride, particularly in schools. Although it was declared a bank holiday by the Scottish government in 2006, it is not in my experience anyway a day that most employers will actually grant you as a day off. How did we get Andrew from Galilee to Scotland? There are a couple of competing theories, so let's get into it. The most suspect and least thrilling of the legends builds upon St Andrew's extensive travels, claiming that he actually travelled as far as Scotland and founded a church while he was there. This seems a bit of a stretch and not one I'm excited to make, so let's move on. Now, I am much more into the medieval legend, not that I believe it's true, it's just a much better story. This version of events tells us that a Greek monk called Rule, or possibly Regulus, possibly both, there are competing versions of this one, had a vision in 304 AD warning him that the first Christian emperor Constantine was intending to move the relics of St Andrew, the first called of the apostles, from Patras, where he was martyred, to Constantinople, the new eastern capital of the empire. Rule, or Regulus, acted to save the relics by taking what he could from Andrew's shrine, an arm bone, three fingers of the right hand, a tooth and a kneecap, and setting out west to find the ends of the earth, which naturally meant, after a very rough crossing, that he landed in Fife on the east coast of Scotland. There he built a church to house the relics in thanksgiving for their survival. Thus we have the founding of St Andrews, for a millennium or so, the home to monks, destination of choice for pilgrims, and now home to golfists and well-to-do students. Yet another theory says that the relics were brought to St Andrews in 733 AD by Bishop Achga of Hexham, who seems to have been driven out from the abbey in Hexham, which had been dedicated to Andrew in 637 AD, and he may have taken his collection of relics with him. Now, whichever legend is closer to the truth, we are unlikely to ever know. However, St Andrews became hugely important as a centre for religious life, study and pilgrimage from the 8th century onwards. 
cracking. So now that we've got half an idea about how we got to St Andrew as our saintly representative, we're pretty much back to where we started with my first question. How did we go about adopting the saltire as Scotland's official fluttery brand logo? Well, we're about to hear that legend that I mentioned. To get the full story, I took myself off to the Scottish Flag Centre in Athelstonford, or Elshinford, depending on which end of the village you come from, apparently, in East Lothian. Sadly, due to a technical misfire, I can't bring you much of the chat that I had with my lovely guides and chair of the Scottish Flag Trust, Dave Williamson. Now, I'm aware that tech fails happen to everyone, but lordy, the crushing shame that it happened on my first episode can't be expressed. Anywho, my visit happened to be on a stunning, sunny and breezy autumn day, and the saltire flying in front of Athelstonford Parish Church was fluttering in the most picture-perfect manner. When you follow the trail of saltire cobblestones around the back of the church, you will find the Scottish Flag Heritage Centre. It's an extraordinary little building. It's a 16th century ducat, in English a pigeon loft, rendered in sunset orange and overlooking the rolling farmland between the village and the Firth of Forth a mile or so to the north. Once you've ducked through the half-height door, you'll see a small space, perhaps big enough for eight or ten people to crowd together. The walls with their pigeonholes and a small information board with a button to start the audio-visual experience. As Celtic and Pictish warriors dance across the walls above you, you hear the story of the Battle of Athelstan Ford. name you will remember, for this is the story of Athelstan Ford. It is believed that the battle took place in the year 832 AD. Now, this is at a point before Scotland was a united nation. At this period, roughly speaking, we had the Kingdom of the Picts in the north and east, and the Scots, or Albanach, the Gaelic-speaking Celts in the west, and in the southeast, around the Lothians, and extending south past the modern border with England, we had the Kingdom of Northumbria, who were Anglo-Saxons. On this particular day, an army of Picts under Angus Machfergus, High King of Alapa, and aided by a contingent of Scots, led by Erge, Kenneth MacAlpin's grandfather, had been on a raid into Northumbrian territory, and they were being chased back towards their own region by a larger force of Saxons, led by a man named Athelstan. This band of Alapinach, the Scots and the Picts, were caught and stood to face their pursuers in the area just to the north of the modern village of Athelstanford, where the Pefferburn flows into the Firth of Forth at Aberlady. The Peffer presented a major obstacle to crossing, and the two armies came together at the ford. Fearing the outcome of the encounter, King Angus led prayers for deliverance. The scene is described by the 16th century historian George Buchanan like this. The Picts, being dismayed at the sudden coming of their enemies, run to their arms and keep themselves in their stations till night. Having set their watches for the night, Angus, being inferior in all other things, desired aid of God and gave himself up wholly to prayer. At last, when his body was wearied with labour and his mind oppressed with care, he seemed to behold Andrew the Apostle standing by him in his sleep, promising him victory. This vision being declared to the Picts filled them full of hope 
so that they prepared themselves with great alacrity to combat, which otherwise they could not avoid. The next day they came to a pitched battle. Some add that another prodigy was seen in the heavens, a cross like the letter X, which did so terrify the English that they could hardly bear the first brunt of the Picts. Athelstan was slain there, who gave his name to the place of the battle, which is yet called Athelstan Ford. Now, I should say that George Buchanan probably isn't the most reliable historian we've ever had. His History of Scotland is a rollicking good read in 16th century terms. And I've included a link to the English translation if you fancy a go yourself. So King Angus had vowed that if with the saints' help he gained the victory, then Andrew would thereafter be the patron saint of Scotland. The Scots did win, and the saltire became the flag of Scotland. I absolutely love that image of the white cross against a blue sky. And in this day of air travel, it's actually something that happens fairly regularly on a clear day. If you look up, you may well see two aircraft vapour trails crossing in midair and giving you that salt air in the wild. Now, I spent my whole visit to Athelstanford staring at the bright blue sky, willing the clouds to form across for me, but it didn't happen. So goes the legend, but there isn't any contemporary evidence to support it, really, other than being reproduced by other early modern historians. And they may have had access to supporting documents that are lost to us now. Where do we actually start to see the saltire and St Andrew as emblems start to appear in the written record? Well, according to the Scottish Flag Trust and a rather excellent essay by Graham Bartram, who's the chief vexillologist to the Flag Institute, which I have linked in the show notes, the earliest evidence we have of St Andrew and his cross appearing in official formats to represent Scotland is in the form of a seal. Now, a seal was a lead stamp that was used to represent a person a business or a family, and it basically amounts to a medieval signature. This seal is of the Guardians of Scotland. This is the crew who were appointed to manage the country when King Alexander III died without an heir in 1286. It is the earliest image that we have of St Andrew on the cross in an official capacity. As for the Saltire Cross on its own, without the saint attached as it were, it is first attested as an emblem on soldiers' uniforms. Now, at this point in history, there wasn't really a clear singular idea of a national flag because the king and nobles from different regions or clans would all fight under their own banners. But on the battlefield, on the day, it's really important to know exactly if the person swords reach from you is on your side or not. So the Scottish Parliament decreed in 1385 that every man, French and Scots, shall have a sign before and behind, namely a white St Andrew's cross. And if his jacket is white or his coat white, he shall bear the said white cross in a piece of black cloth, round or square. In this first mention of the Psalter, we have a couple of things to examine. First of all, yes, the French and the Scots were fighting together at this point. I'm sure that one of these days I might get round to doing an episode on the Old Alliance as it's known, so let's just leave it there for now. The other thing to note is that it is the cross itself rather than the background that is the important factor in this design. And when it does need to be specified, the background is black rather than the more familiar blue. Around about the same period, there is a white saltire on a sage green background included in a design for the standard of the Earl of Douglas that was supposedly flown at the Battle of Otterburn in 1388. But it's only a small part of a busy design that also includes two hearts, a lion and lettering. It is unclear when blue was adopted, really. Perhaps it's something 
that's developed from the legend of the white clouds on the blue sky. Or, perhaps more practically, it was something to do with the availability of dyes for making specific colours. The specific shade of blue wasn't standardised until 2003, when a Scottish government committee came together to decide what shade exactly it should be, because the flag manufacturers were undecided, and saltires were available in pretty much every shade, from pale sky blue right the way through to the dark navy that you might associate with the Union flag. So now, it's been decided that the saltire is Pantone 300, or hash 005 EB8, in hexadecimal, if that works for you. Okay, let's get back to the early 16th century, where the white cross on a blue background is very much in evidence as the standard for Scottish Royal Navy ships. In 1511, during the reign of James IV, Scotland's navy was at its height. And the records show a whopping £72 Scots being spent on a main standard for the flagship the Great Michael. The flag had a St Andrew's cross on blue at the hoist and a fly of red and yellow with the royal badges of the red lion and the white unicorn. Now, after the Acts of Union, the saltire became the backdrop for a new flag design. Very quickly, because I don't want to assume that everybody knows this stuff and it is important, but also I don't want to get massively off topic. There were two historical moments that brought Scotland's relationship with our neighbours down south much closer. The first was the Union of the Crowns in 1603, when King James VI of Scotland inherited the English throne when Queen Elizabeth died without an heir. He became James I of England and became, confusingly, I'm sure for some, known as James I and VI. Now, this King James created a new flag, combining the crosses of St Andrew and St George. But the flying of this flag was restricted to royal ships. At this point, Scotland and England are still independent countries and the saltire continued to be flown at home and sea. However, after the Act of Union in 1707, which dissolved the Scottish Parliament and brought Scotland's representatives to the government in London, the Union flag was introduced as the new flag of Great Britain, as the country was now to be called. This flag wasn't particularly popular, either in Scotland or in England. The English didn't like that the white background of the Cross of St George was now blue, and the Scots didn't like that their cross was obscured and broken up by the superimposed red of the English cross. So, joys. No one was happy. Such is life. There was another tweak to the Union flag design in 1800, when an act of union created the new United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The red saltire, which now represents Northern Ireland, was added, and that's how the Union flag, as we know it today, was created. As a quick aside, I am way too old to have only just noticed that the Union flag isn't symmetrical. But now that I have, I can't unsee it, and it really bothers me. After the Act of Union, the use of the saltire declined, although it did make a reappearance during the Dracobite uprisings in 1715 and 1745. If you're in Edinburgh, you can visit the National Museum in Chamber Street, and see a saltire that was flown by the Jacobite forces of the Stuarts of Appen at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. This flag was rescued from capture by the government by a soldier called David Livingston. Livingston tore the flag from its pole and wrapped it around his torso, hidden under his shirt, before fleeing the route. He presented the flag back to the Stuarts in Balahulish, and thus saved it from the same treatment as the other flags and colours captured by the government forces after the battle. These captured banners were taken to Edinburgh Castle, 
as if the flags themselves were prisoners. The flags were paraded down the Royal Mile to the Mercat Cross on June the 4th, 1746. Each was held up by one of the city's chimney sweeps. When they arrived at the cross and a large crowd had gathered, each of the clans and regiments represented by the flags was named and the flags were burnt by Edinburgh's chief hangman, John Dalgleish. This whole ceremony was carried out on the orders of His Royal Highness the Duke of Cumberland, who went down in history as Butcher Cumberland. He had an eye for brutal theatricality, but he knew what those colours and strips of cloth represented, and he wasn't going to miss any opportunity to quash any Jacobite sympathies. The blue and white saltire of the Appen shirts in the National Museum hangs beside a Union flag that was flown on the government side at Culloden. As I said though, the use of the saltire declined until the later half of the 20th century when there was a major resurgence and it regained its status as the national flag of Scotland. It's used by Scottish teams in international competitions, it's flown from public buildings and it forms the logos of many Scottish-based businesses such as the Bank of Scotland. Where else would you get to see a saltire? Is there anywhere more exciting than a government building? How about space? Oh yes, there has even been a Scottish saltire in space. A flag which had been flown at Holyrood, the seat of the Scottish Parliament, was taken to the International Space Station by astronaut Neil Patrick in December 2006. You can see this flag at the National Museum in Edinburgh as well. And if Edinburgh is a stretch too far for you right now, then you can always check out the link to the National Museum collection in the show notes. Of course, there is always something to complain about, and the regrowth in the popularity of the saltire is controversial in some quarters. Of course, there are protocols for all of the flags that can be flown in an official capacity, but that doesn't mean that everyone agrees with the choices that are made. Since the reopening of the Scottish Parliament in 1999, Scotland has had a much greater level of government autonomy than in the last few centuries, but it's still in a political union with the rest of the United Kingdom. Some people will see a saltire flying and feel slighted if the Union flag isn't on display as well. Whereas to others, seeing a Union flag where a saltire alone would do means that you are erasing some part of Scotland's identity, its importance or its relevance. These irritations were really heightened during the debates around the Scottish independence referendum and they honestly haven't fully settled again nearly a decade later. I think what we're going to discover as we go along with the Scottishist is that there is no single version of Scottishness. For being so small, we are a diverse country with multiple languages and cultural practices and there is nowhere near enough attention paid to that fact. So yeah, there are proud Scots who love the Union flag, there are proud Scots who fly the saltire and there are plenty in the middle who don't want their identity tied to a flagpole, even one with such a great story attached. So... There we are. Episode one is done. Thank you so much for sticking with me this long. And I have my fingers crossed that you will pop back for episode two. Before you go, can you spare a second to hit the subscribe button and share this episode? I have no advertising budget right now, so I'm really relying on word of mouth to get this show in people's ears. That word comes from your mouth. So please, if you have enjoyed this episode, do share it with your friends, lovers, enemies, esteemed work colleagues, hated work colleagues, Facebook groups, and maybe even your great Auntie Joan. I know that that might mean showing her how to use Spotify, but that is the kind of dedication that I need right now. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, where you will be able to see that I am not very good at Instagram or Facebook. If you have any questions that you would like answered about the icons of Scottish culture, 
then you can get involved. We have a Patreon and for $3 a month, that's about a cup of coffee a month, you can enjoy exclusive content, members can submit questions and together we can get right down to the nuts, the bolts, the facts, fictions and feelings that we have for the Scottishist stuff. Massive thanks today go to the Scottish Flag Centre for their help and for allowing me to visit out of season. If you are in Scotland in the spring, I'd highly recommend it as a place to stop for half an hour. It's just a few miles south of Edinburgh, a quick five minute diversion off the A1 and it is well worth it for the visitor experience. To learn more about their work, please check out the link in the notes. Also, if you're struggling for a Christmas gift for the Scottishest person in your life, you can sponsor the Saltire for a day and they will have their name in the book of the Saltire at the Scottish Flag Centre. Thank you to the John Boy for the theme music. I'd also like to thank the amazing group of women who make up my hype team for encouraging me to get my head out of my arse and the Scottishist off the ground. The Scottishist will be back in a fortnight with episode two. Until then, cheerio.